what would it take for you to line up at a courthouse at 4.30 in the morning? According to Leah Nylon, who covers antitrust for Bloomberg News, that's what was happening in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday. I didn't get here until 7.30, and I was the first reporter here because I'm a nerd. There were people who were really wanted to get in. They had um, the regular courtroom and two overflows, actually, on the very first day. That's the very first day of United States versus Google, a.k.a. the biggest antitrust trial in more than 20 years. How long have you, Leah, been waiting for this trial? Oh, uh, probably, I mean, 12 years. (laughs) Really? Well, I mean, so... When I first started on The Beat, there was an investigation into Google going on at the time uh, by a different agency, the Federal Trade Commission. They ultimately ended up not bringing a case. That was like one of my very first years on The Beat. But a lot of the allegations in this case are actually things that the FTC investigated way back in like 2010, 2011, 2012. I mean, some of the stuff we've seen so far goes back as far as 2003. So um, this is like a decade in the making, at least. And how long do you think the U.S. government has been waiting to take on Google? Well, (laughs) as I said, you know, they did do this big investigation, uh, you know, 13 years ago. Um, This particular investigation started in 2019. And now here we are finally getting to the good stuff, which is the trial and the eventual decision. And what happens in this trial, which is expected to last 10 weeks, could determine the fate of not just Google, but all of Silicon Valley. Today on the show, the government takes Google to court. When the gavel finally comes down, will the company still be in one piece? I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Before we get deep into the specifics of this case, it's worth considering Google's ubiquity. Email, maps, browsers, ads, so much of the internet runs through Google. The heart of the company and the heart of this case is search. Oh, my favorite thing that came out yesterday was a statistic that Google makes $65 a year in profit for every person that uses its search engine. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes. Um, Which is if you, you know, there are more than 3 billion people in the world. So you do that math. It's, It's so large that it's incomprehensible. I mean, Google, as everyone knows, is the largest search engine, but it's also YouTube. It has the largest mapping platform with Google Maps. It has the most used smartphone uh, operating system with Android. It's the biggest in a lot of categories. It's a $1.95 trillion company. I like to say it is the fourth largest company in the world behind uh, Apple, Microsoft, and Saudi Arabia's oil company. (laughs) And we have covered this case before, but but can you give me the CliffsNotes version of what the government says Google did? Yeah, so the CliffsNotes is this. Uh, the Justice Department says that 
Google entered into contracts with a lot of people, rivals, web browser makers, smartphone manufacturers, to ensure that it was set as the pre-selected option, otherwise known as a default, on browsers and smartphones, so that everywhere that you go to search the web, they are the pre-selected option. The government says that this locked up all of the access points to the internet and meant that other search engines could never get the data and users that they need to improve their products. I want to look at two separate parts of this case in in detail. One is the default question, which you just raised. And the other, which you alluded to as well, is the idea of these sort of symbiotic relationships between companies. On which devices is Google the default search engine? Pretty much every smartphone sold in the United States has Google set as the default because Google is the default on all Apple products, all iPhones, and it is also the default on every Android device, which is like 95% of mobile devices. I think there are some people out there who still buy dumb phones, um, so it's not there because you can't even access the internet, but it is the default on uh, iPads. It is the default on any kind of Android tablet. The only one that's pretty popular that it's not the default on is the Amazon Fire tablet. And it is also the default on any Mac computer. So if you uh, have a Mac, it is set as the default for Safari. If you have a Chromebook, it is set as the default on there. It's just if you have a Windows PC, it's probably not set as the default. I think that's an important thing to to point out that you mentioned about the the browsers, because I, I think that some people who are not thinking about kind of the, the guts of search might say like, well, but I use Safari. What do you mean? It's like, oh, no, but your searches on Safari are in fact powered by Google. Yeah, there was. Um, so my favorite witness so far is this guy who's on the stand right now. He is a behavioral economist by the name of Antonio Rangel. Um, and Uh, Google has been walking him through all of these devices and pointing out that in a lot of them, there's a small type that says, you know, your search is being made by Google. And he says, yeah, just because something is there doesn't mean people are processing it. This is the conclusion of a century of research into psychology. Like, even though, (laughs) you know, it says in small type that you are searching on Google, People don't know that. You would be surprised the number of people who have zero idea that when they go to a Safari browser and just type something in, it automatically goes to Google. Well, this goes to my next question. Is Google the default search engine because people prefer it and are choosing it or because Google made a very lucrative deal with device manufacturers and notably Apple to to achieve that distinction? That's a very good question. Google, of course, says it is the default because people like it. Um, Their argument is that if you don't like it, you know, you have other options. You can download Bing. You can download DuckDuckGo. There is a way within any, not any, most of these browsers, there is a way to change your default search engine. But one, you have to know that there is a default and then you have to know how to change it. And as someone who has tried, it's not particularly easy to do either of these things. Um, and so this is a part of the question. Like, how how much do people use Google because they like it? How much do people use Google because they have to? This expert has um, pointed to a couple really interesting examples of when uh, people have tried to switch. So there is a browser called Brave. It's it's a very privacy-focused one. 
they did an experiment where um, they switched all of their users in certain countries to DuckDuckGo, which is another uh, search engine that's particularly popular with people who are privacy-focused because it doesn't collect any information about you when you're doing a search. And they found that when they, you know, made the switch, most people kept DuckDuckGo. They didn't switch back to Google. Um, they can't tell us the exact number of people because that's um, a confidential thing. But he said a sizable number of people never switched back. There was another uh, example that they've talked a lot about so far in this trial, and I expect we'll <laughs> keep hearing about, which is that. 2012 switch to Apple Maps. So if you're an iPhone user, you may remember that back in 2012, um, Apple decided that it was no longer going to use Google Maps as the default search map on the iPhone, but instead switched to Apple Maps. And so one day, everyone woke up and all of a sudden, Apple Maps was there. And if you clicked on uh, an address in like a website or in your email or something, and it, it switched over to the app, all of a sudden it was Apple Maps instead of Google Maps. Yeah. And people were furious because at the time, Apple Maps was not a particularly great product. No, they were so bad. <laughs> like Tim Cook literally apologized to customers over this and was like, well, if you feel the need to go back to Google Maps, you can. But what they found through like the Justice Department found is that most people actually kept Apple Maps <laughs> because it was the default. Like they didn't know how to switch back and like... Even though it was, like, not as good, like, it was good enough, so people kept it. And when Google was renegotiating its agreement with Apple a few years later, it referenced this incident. They knew that if Apple switched the default on the iPhone away from them, it could lead to a significant impact in the number of people who are using its search engine and, in turn, a significant impact on its ad revenue, which is how it makes money. Well, why does the DOJ say that that having this default setting is harmful for consumers anyway? Is it that it takes away our ability to choose? Is it about market power? Is it some combination of the two? It's a little bit of both. Like, the fact that Google is so large gives it the ability to dictate a lot of terms to people. It has all of this money uh, through its advertising, and that is how it ended up getting the defaults, right? It, it's paying for all of these. It pays billions of dollars a year to all of these companies for this privilege of being the default. But the Justice Department also argues that um, this has harmed consumers, not in money, because the product you're using is free, but in maybe privacy. You know, Google scoops up a lot of information about you when you're doing search. And maybe if uh, there were other options like DuckDuckGo, Microsoft's Bing, whatever, they would have, you know, more privacy protective search engines. Um, the other thing is, uh, my favorite quote from the openings was something the government lawyer said. And he said, Google's position in the market has allowed Google to walk when competition would have made it run. So hmm. the idea is that, you know, Google would have had this, you know, competitive pressure to make its product better if it had competitors. But it hasn't had competitors for so long that, you know, it has gradually, you know, a lot of people feel that Google search has gradually degraded over time. You know, it takes you a little bit longer to scroll through those ads to get to the organic results. You get a lot more like things urging you to shop for things when maybe you're not even looking to buy something. That's sort of like an innovation degradation that would not have otherwise occurred. Yeah. 
when we come back. If you're thinking, hey, this sounds like that big Microsoft case, here's why you're right and also wrong. You wrote a really interesting piece about sort of the symbiosis uh, between various companies, uh, specifically a- Apple and Google. I, I want to understand why these two companies acted together to to kind of strike these deals, because in some ways they're rivals. I like to call them frenemies because <laughs> in some ways they are like enemies. You know, Android and iPhone are the two biggest platforms for mobile phones. And like, you know, Google wants you to use Android, Apple wants you to use iPhone. Um, but in other ways, they like cooperate a lot, right? Um, there is this uh, deal that Google has with Apple where it pays to be the default on Safari. This deal has existed since 2003. Do we know how much it is? That is the million dollar, well, billion dollar <laughs> question. <laughs> no one has said how much it is. There have been some estimates that it could be as much as $18 billion a year. That's billion with a B. The Justice Department said in its opening statement, cited another uh, estimate that it is $4 to $7 billion annually. Then Apple got up yesterday and complained about the fact that Google said that because they said that's not the actual number. (laughs) But they don't want anyone to know what the number is. So, yeah, like how much money... Google pays to Apple is like hotly debated, but it's we know it's in the billions of dollars and we know it's essentially free money for Apple. It doesn't have to do anything but take the money from Google and make sure it's the default in Safari. There's some really interesting emails that have come to light in the process of this case. Um, and I, I'm going to read from one. This is from a senior Apple employee to to their Google counterpart saying, our vision is that we work as if we are one company. I I feel like, yikes, that's kind of not what you want read out loud in court. But also, like, it does make me wonder, okay, is Google really a monopoly if there's another company that's as big and powerful that's also throwing its muscle around? Like, how do you unpack that? Yeah, I mean... There are a couple ways. One, this is a, a thing that Annie Shosla absolutely hates. Like price fixing, like all of your competitors getting together and like uh, settling on a price or cooperating on things is, is, is like the antithesis of antitrust law. So that like quote is like a five alarm fire <laughs> from an antitrust perspective. And the other thing that I would say is like, this, this has always been a bit a bit of a question, like, is Apple a monopoly and Google a monopoly in their own like little worlds? Like Google is a monopoly over Android. Apple is a monopoly over iPhone. Or is it a duopoly? Hmm. Like there are only two players and they actually compete against each other. The thing is though, no one really knows. And both of the companies say they have no data on how many people actually ever switch between iPhone and Android. I find it fascinating that that both companies profess that no data on this ever exists. Listeners will not be able to see me raising my eyebrows, but they're like, like way, way up. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, hmm. What does Google say in response to the Justice Department? Yeah, so uh, we previewed this a little bit. They say uh, people use our search engine because it's really good. 
that's their number one thing. You know, we have a great product. We have improved it over time and people like to use it. That's why so many people do use it. And the other thing that they love to say, which they've been saying now for more than a decade, is competition is just a click away. If you do not like using Google, it is very easy for you to go up to the top of your browser and type in, you know, www.bing.com or www.duckduckduckgo.com. You can get to another browser. And that's the big difference between this and the Microsoft case, which uh, started 25 years ago next month in this same courthouse. There's actually like this little exhibit down on the first floor about the Microsoft really? case that has pictures of like Bill Gates. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was like, we were joking, uh, the reporters, about how one day maybe we'll have a little like exhibit about our case down there. <laughs> you've you've teed me up for the Microsoft question because I have not read a single you know, story about this case that doesn't compare it to to the Microsoft one. And I I wonder where you think the similarities are and and where it is crucially different. The Microsoft case, it was alleged to have harmed competition by bundling the Microsoft operating system, the Windows operating system on computers with Internet Explorer. So what that means is anytime somebody bought a new computer, it would come with Windows And pre-installed on there was Internet Explorer. So the only browser that was available when you pulled the computer out of the box. And Microsoft also allegedly, and the courts found that they did, uh, created some technical barriers that made it really hard for computer makers or consumers to install another browser. You have to remember this was back in the day when they were literally emailing CDs through the mail for you to like stick in your computer and then download and install Netscape, which was at the time the uh, other browser that people really liked using. So the Justice Department and the courts eventually found that Microsoft had done this and they uh, required Microsoft to change (laughs) some of its practices, including making sure that other companies could offer browsers and other types of software more easily on its uh, Windows machines. So... Obviously, there are a lot of parallels here with Google, like this idea that when you open something out of the box, this is the default option. This is the option that they've given you. And the difference is, um, as Google likes to point out, today it's a lot easier to switch, right? We're no longer sending CD-ROMs through the mail. You go to the app store and you download something and then, you know, it's a couple clicks, as Google says, to switch. But this issue of the default is still like really important because as you know, the expert witness that they've had so far says, you have to know that it's the default and that you can change it. And then you have to know how to change it. Some of Google's legal team actually worked on the, the Microsoft case in the 90s, but, but they were on the other side. They were working for the government. And I wonder what you think they learned and, and are bringing with them into this case. Yeah, that was actually one of my questions. I did a story on it that published, I think, I think the day the trial started because there are a lot of people representing Google today who were involved in the Microsoft battle. So Google's chief legal officer, Kent Walker, was in fact uh, one of the top lawyers at Netscape during the entire Microsoft thing. One of Google's longtime antitrust lawyers is a woman named Susan Creighton, and she wrote this very influential white paper back in the 1990s that outlined the case against Microsoft from Netscape's perspective. And then 
Google's lead lawyer in this case, the guy who's been getting up most days, he did their opening statement and he's doing most of the interviewing of witnesses, is a man by the name of John Schmidtlein. He represented uh, the state's attorneys general in the Microsoft case. So there are all of these people in the trial today who have, you know, this experience 25 years ago about defaults. And so it's so fascinating to me that it's come full circle. As I said, you know, their their main point is that, yes, there is a default, but it's easily easy to change. That's sort of the thing that they had taken from Microsoft is, yes, defaults can be problematic, but we're still offering consumers a choice because you can ch- switch it. But it, it is so fascinating to me that so many of these people, you know, were here, you know, when that exhibit down on the first floor <laughs> was created. You know, the Microsoft case... I remember it. It was not just like a huge moment in the history of antitrust or technology, but it also had this like cultural currency. It was on Saturday Night Live. Thank you. I'm Colin Quinn. Here are tonight's top stories. After U.S. District Judge Thomas Penfield Jackson ruled yesterday that Microsoft is a monopoly, the Justice Department predicted there would be serious consequences for the software giant. Citing a phrase Windows users know all too well, Judge Jackson told Microsoft executives, you performed an illegal function and will shut down. For, for some reason, this case does not feel that way. I, I wonder if you have thoughts about why. There's a couple things. People have told me, like, back in the Microsoft case 25 years ago, every day on the radio, you would, like, turn on and they would have a dispatch. Yes, I was a senior in college. This is true. That trial went on for 72 days. and. I am sort of amazed that everyone <laughs> cared enough to listen for all 72 days. But like what, what people tell me is like, you know, Microsoft was the first big U.S. tech company and Bill Gates was really beloved sort of at the time. You know, he was seen as this like American hero who had, you know, created this like visionary company that was doing a great business. And, you know, in the course of that trial, his... His deposition was made publicly, and it sort of like ruined his reputation. People saw him as like really mean and combative. Increasing um, IE share on Mac will help increase the number of windows that you license. Yeah, I went I went through the chain of logic that explains that to you. I, I don't know if you misunderstood some part of it. All I'm trying to do is get your answers on the record, because if I begin to tell you what I think about your answers, we'll be here all day. Um, And it completely changed people's view of Microsoft. There's a couple things. One, I think we already have had a little bit more of disillusionment with the tech companies today. This trial is just seen as one more thing that Google is doing badly. But I will tell you, the thing that I have found super fascinating is the number of international outlets who have asked me for interviews this last week. I've done Canadian radio, radio in Hong Kong. I was on Croatian television this morning. There are people all around the world who are really fascinated by this trial and like the idea that the U.S. government might do something about Google because, you know, for so long, it's felt like nothing could be done about any of the these tech platforms. And now maybe something will happen. The Microsoft trial was long and complicated. There was a verdict against the company. It it was partially overturned. There was a settlement. But it did not result in a breakup of Microsoft. 
I wonder if you think a breakup of Google is on the table here. Yeah. So that is the other billion dollar question, I suppose. So before uh, Microsoft, all of the previous big monopolization cases led to a breakup. So Standard Oil from back in the 1920s, the U.S. government broke Standard Oil up into 17 different companies. Uh, AT&T in 1984, the U.S. government broke it up into the baby bells, uh, as they were called. They did want to break up Microsoft. They were going to be called the baby bills, and I love that so much. <laughs> Um, but then they they weren't able to do that. You know, uh, it was the right after the Reagan era. The court wasn't persuaded. They ended up with this settlement. So it's a big question. Like, what is the Justice Department going to do if it wins this case? This trial right now is just focused on the liability, i.e., did Google break the law or not? Once the judge issues a decision on that, if he does find Google broke the law, then the Justice Department will get to ask for what it wants. And there will probably actually be another trial on that next year. But the two main options are breakup and conduct remedy or behavior change. So if they ask for a breakup, some of the things that people think is that they might ask that they have to sell off the Chrome browser so they no longer have that avenue, you know, or they could ask for them to sell off the Android operating system for smartphones, another, you know, like huge aspect of Google's business. There are, you know, because we've talked about them before, a bunch of other cases against Google that are pending by these same folks, the state and federal antitrust enforcers. The other option, which is what happened in Microsoft, is like to make the company change its behavior. And so the big thing that people think might happen there is that they might require Google to turn over a lot of the data that it has collected to some other search engines so that they could improve their products and like make consumers want to use them more. The Justice Department said that every day Google gets 16 times the amount of data that Bing does. And so people believe, you know, if they had a lot more data, they could improve their product and maybe they wouldn't, you know, maybe consumers would be happy to choose those options um, if, you know, Bing and, and DuckDuckGo and some of the others, you know, could improve enough that it's the same, you know, it's almost the same results as using Google. If there if there is a ruling or a series of rulings against Google, what does it do for all those other tech companies that are watching this so closely? That uh, is a very good question. This is the first one to go. Um, so this is sort of like the bellwether of what might happen. You know, we still have a big case pending against Facebook that's trying to force them to sell Instagram and WhatsApp. The FTC is supposed to sue Amazon later this month. Um, and we still have this Apple case that the Justice Department has been working on since 2019, like waiting in the wings. So... I think, you know, a lot of the enforcers are hoping for a good verdict here that that shows, you know, one, that antitrust laws are still relevant and can take on the biggest companies in the world. And, uh, you know, that we can we could still do something about a company that's almost as big as a government. You've alluded to to all of these other cases that are in the works now. And it's funny, I'm thinking about the number of times I've talked to you about them but then also the number of conversations I had about how Congress was supposed to take on big tech, and that never really happened. But but now these cases are, are really moving forward in the justice system. And I, I wonder, like, how you would describe this era, this, this era of court cases, and how risky you would say it is for big tech? 
The first, you know, era of antitrust was in the, uh, you know, early 1900s when the federal government, you know, took on Standard Oil. They took on the railroads. um, They took on the meatpacking industry. They created the FTC so that we had two agencies focused on antitrust, not just one. This is really like a huge renaissance for antitrust. Um, Jonathan Cantor, who's the current head of the uh, antitrust division at at DOJ, and and at the helm of this case. At the helm of this case. He likes to say that, you know, when he was like being, you know, learning about antitrust back in the 1980s, um, you know, all of the cool cases were USV. And then for a long time, antitrust sort of fell by the wayside and there weren't as many cases being brought by the federal government. And so he wants to like reinvigorate the USV cases. And so that's what's happening here. I think that's why there's so much sort of emphasis by the Biden administration, Jonathan Cantor, and his counterpart at the FTC, Lena Khan, on like the importance of antitrust and how it really can help like create a really innovative and important U.S. economy. Leah Nylan, as always, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. Leah Nyland covers antitrust for Bloomberg News. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. And we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you like what we're doing here, I have a request for you. Join Slate Plus. It's the best way to support what we do. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back on Saturday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.